So this this afternoon we have a chance to reflect on Dhamma the way it is. So like I've emphasized many times, the word Dhamma, for most of us who don't come from Buddhist countries, it's an exotic word, Pali Sanskrit word that we learn and associated with Buddhism. And when I say reflecting on Dhamma, then I say the way it is. Because Dhamma, you can translate as ultimate reality, as ultimate reality is here and now. Well, the English words ultimate reality sounds very uh, like far away, high up. We think of our daily lives as just ordinary eating, sleeping, working, thinking. And so we identify ourselves always with worldly conditions that are changing rather than what we really are, ultimate reality. So in exploring investigating Sama Vichaya is a factor of enlightenment and encouragement to investigate Dhamma here and now. And then you observe just the, the changing conditions that you're experiencing. So you can be aware of the mood, the emotion you're feeling as it arises and ceases. You can be aware of thoughts coming and going, wandering mind. Uh, you can be aware of physical sensations of restlessness, pleasure or pain. Be aware of sound that we hear through the ears. And all these conditions, sensual conditions, we identify with, we form our sense of personal character. You know, our unique personal character, our soul, our separateness, with identifying with the very unstable conditions that we experience through the senses. 
And then you reflect on the senses that they're very unstable. Uh, you know, good vision or hearing or even a, a sense of taste can disappear. Sense of smell can vanish. So this is just the, the, when we talk about ignorance or avicca, ignorance of Dhamma, it's this assertion of our separateness through identifying with memories, with emotions, with habits, with perceptions, everything that's changing and its very nature is changed. You can't stop sankharas or phenomena from changing from one thing to another. Then we live here at Amravati, and it's a name given to the place. And it, we consider it a Buddhist monastery, and then we form opinions about too many people, or I like it, I don't like it, I can't meditate here, I like to meditate here, I want to be here, I don't want to be here. And we can change according to the mood of the moment. So when we reflect on the way it is, we're not giving you kind of doctrines or trying to convince you of anything, but encouraging you to, to be aware of the way it is. That not just to say Amravati as you perceive Amravati to be, your perception of it, can, you can form an opinion about it, and then operate always from your particular biased view, your prejudice towards or against it. But that's not reflecting, that's just grasping views and opinions. So we can consider, you know, we get bored, we, uh, we learn the routine of Amravati, we, we, be, we can, you hear of better places to go, I want to go to Thailand, I want to go to Harnam, I want to go to Chithurst, I want to go to Italy, or you know, then Sri Lanka, I want to go to Sri Lanka, because there are perceptions that, are, that you perceive as being better than what you have here. But a guideline for judging a monastery, whether it's worth staying or going, is does it like is this monast is it uh, well supported? Do you have enough to eat? Do you have enough of the four requisites: a uh, place to live, or uh, uh, food to eat, or medicine for illness? Do you have enough robes to wear? Do they keep the Vinaya? 
you know, do they respect Vinaya as a, as a Sangha form? And so in all these aspects, you know, then we, we begin to see our own restlessness wanting to be somewhere that we imagine is better than here. Or we're bored with this place, we want to go to another place. And yet the path of liberation is witnessing this, this restlessness. It's not, uh, not condemning it, because we all suffer from it. Because we, you know, in my own experience, in, when I first ordained, I, you know, I had formed opinions and views about Wat Papong and other branch monasteries. I always had this view that, that uh, as Wat Papong became more famous and more popular, then it wasn't as good as it was when I first went there, when it was just a remote forest monastery in Ubon province. But then as Ajahn Chah's wisdom began to penetrate into uh, local towns and even to Bangkok and other parts of Thailand, then of course all kinds of, of um, donations came in to improve the conditions. But I'd set my, my perceptions on Wat Papong as it actually was when I went there, which was in 1967, and uh, conceived that is the, the, the perfect example of a forest, Buddhist forest monastery. And as it began to change, I became, because I'd fixed my perception on this very basic uh, monastery that I, I made it into an idol of perfection, then the tendency to improve on it, I became critical. And I didn't see what I was doing. I became very righteous because uh, Wat Bapong, as I first saw it was how I fixed my perception of what a, mo a good forest monastery should be. But then the Lumpur Cha's encouragement to investigate how we felt, I began to, to investigate this idea that, that uh, we should try to keep Wat Papong as it was originally and not let it change, let wealthy people's influence it into improving, improving the roads, improving the quality of the kutis, um, improving the, the sala, the meeting halls. You know, this was all part of the natural progress of change when when Lung Pa Cha became well known. And so, becoming discontented with Wat Bapong, I went to another branch monastery where it was 
just beginning, a kind of rough forest monastery north of Wat Bapong, and, and then I formed a, an ideal perception of that monastery. And then, of all things, that monastery was in a very beautiful place with hills and cliffs and caves, and there was a huge amount of uh, American Air Force personnel and airmen in Ubon itself. And so, Tham Seng Pet, which was in the district of Amnachalern, north of Ubon, became a tourist site. And so GIs, American airmen, would come up on motorcycles with girlfriends and have picnics in my monastery. <laughs> so I made a sign, I remember, in English, which I think still exists there in the sala, about how to behave yourself in a Buddhist monastery because these American airmen didn't know. They pointed their feet at the Buddha Rupa. They brought whiskey and liquor with them and, and uh, all the things you shouldn't do in a monastery. You know, it felt very righteous about pointing out uh, this is wrong. But it's it's but then in reflecting, I began to see how I wanted Wat Bapong to be a certain way, and when it began to change, then I became critical of it because I had fixed, I had kind of bound myself to an original perception. And when that began to change, when that perception was threatened, I felt indignant, I felt righteous, I felt my perfect view of a monastery was right, what the Buddha really wanted. And I became very righteous when the, I was at Tham Sang Patton and, and uh, American airmen came up and, and became a kind of uh, tourist attraction. I felt very righteous because I wanted to keep it as, a, as my private uh, meditation site. So what, what am I saying here is that this sense of me and mine became very dominant in how I first perceived uh, Theravada Buddhism, Lung Pa Cha, Wat Pa Pong, and my life in Thailand. And... Um, So then when Lung Po Cha asked me to uh, establish Wat Banana Chat, at that time when, when, when I went to live in the haunted forest outside of Ban Bung Wai, which is now Wat Banana Chat, I, I was, they were building a Uposita Hall, a, a temple at Wat Bapong. And Lung Po Cha was talked to many architects about how, what kind of uposita hall he wanted. And so I 
uh, you know, I was aware of this, but I was kind of glad I wasn't involved in it personally. <clears throat> and so uh, Lumpur Cha chose a completely modern design for his Uposadol. He didn't want a, a traditional Northeast Thailand type temple. He refused any of those kind of designs and settled for a rather modern, uh, strangely modern design for his Uposada Hall. And so then that be became another subject of controversy when most people couldn't understand uh, what it was because it didn't conform to the villagers' fixed view of what a proper Uposada Hall in Thailand should look like. And when I went to establish Wat Banana Chat, I thought, I'm going to keep this, this monastery very basic. So the villagers in the local village built a kind of grass roof sala with a dirt floor, bamboo benches to, to sit on, and uh, the kutis were, I said, I want just bamboo kutis with grass roofs. Uh, so I had this idea of uh, being a, an example of one who wants very little and who's satisfied with very basic conditions. So I was grasping this ideal for myself as, as one who's content with the very uh, basics of, uh, that were available at that time. And so uh, the villagers built a bamboo hut for me with a grass roof, but they wouldn't build any more bamboo huts. They were too, took too much work, labor, and people were, you know, you could buy cement posts and lumber and and uh, tin roofs in the t local town. It's much easier to build a kuti with a tin roof than to make a grass roof. And it was much more effective in, in dealing with the rain, rainy season. So I had to give in to more advanced forms of kutis. Eventually, they, we built a, a sala and change goes on and on and on like that. Just now Wat Chat, if you go there, I went there last year to the celebration of the new Uposada Hall, and it's the most elegant Uposada Hall in, in Northeast Thailand, I swear. <laughs> and Wat Chat, they had to prepare all kinds of uh, uh, tarmac paths and roads in so that the, the royal family, the king and queen of Thailand came to this, this celebration. And so suddenly all this becomes famous and the conditions are, you know, people don't want to build grass huts, bamboo huts and, and grass roofs. So because the times have changed since 2,500 years ago. But just to point out how one can fix one's ideal 
and operate always from an ideal that might be a very beautiful ideal, but that's not investigating the way it is. That's like clinging to some image of a, a perfect monastery uh, that you create in your mind. But monasteries are like all conditions, like all phenomena, they're in the process of change. That's what they do, like Chithurst, if you go there now, than what it was when we first went there in 1979. Uh, uh, it was, you know, a derelict house, barely livable. Now it's, you know, it's very well run, very well designed and beautifully uh, manicured gardens and so forth that that didn't exist when when we first went to live at Chisers. It looked like a junkyard, like a gypsy encampment. But the whole point of meditation or reflecting on the way it is is that all conditions are impermanent. Sape Sankara Anicca is a constant refrain to keep in your mind as a way of reflecting on the way it is, well, how you're feeling, your physical health, your emotional state is whatever it is, whether you consider it right or wrong, good or bad, it is, its very nature is change. But that which is aware of change doesn't change. So we find our strength in Dhamma, which doesn't change, which is apparent here and now. And then, as I pointed out many times, that apparent here and now is consciousness. So we all are experiencing consciousness. Consciousness is apparent here and now, no matter what state you're in, whether you're in a grass-roofed bamboo hut in Northeast Thailand or a modern, uh, elegant, customized kuti for senior monks, it's always here and now. So we begin to, to relax into the here and now rather than trying to change things, endlessly try to change or, or follow our restless desires thinking another place would be better than this one. But seeing the discontentment we might feel as a condition arising and ceasing. Now, in terms of Sangha life, the traditional form, the Bhikkhu Sangha, the Siladhara Sangha, these are kind of forms that we use to help us to investigate 
our minds, our, the way we are as, as a separate individual. So each one of us, at every moment is, uh, you know, you're not going to feel exactly what I'm feeling right now. I can be aware of what I'm feeling, but I can't be aware of what you're feeling. But that awareness of feeling is conscious, is mindfulness, sati sampatanya, and clear comprehension, it's very clear, very here, very now. It's like listening, it's like observing, watching. Not with uh, my critical mind, but just in a relaxed, observing way. Just watching the, the changes go on in your, in your mind as you're sitting here as your body feels a certain way, as your emotions change, that awareness of change doesn't change. So when we take refuge in Dhamma, we're taking refuge in ultimate reality but what is ultimate reality is apparent here and now and timeless. So it's not something distant that you have to get or seek. You know, many of us start out in monastic life or in meditation seeking. We want to seek enlightenment. We want, we don't, we aren't comfortable. We may not like the way we are. We're not content with the, the way we are as we perceive ourselves through the five khandhas. Because there's always something that we can object to in oneself. There's always something to criticize. And there's no perfect human being like a was Lung Po Cha perfect in every aspect? Was he uh, like a Buddha Rupa? You know, totally uh, present uh, and full of compassion every moment of his life? Or did he have a personality that would change according to conditions? You know, and when you're living with someone like that, you're you're aware of that the personality is conditioned. So we all have very different personalities. We're from, this is a multinational sangha, so we're from, from Asia, from Europe, from America. We're culturally different, generationally different, so these differences, you know, we can, like someone of my generation, you would consider old-fashioned. Because I'm not really up to date on modern rap music or 
popular trends. I'm not very skilled at, at uh, IT and uh, things like that. I'm not, I wasn't brought up with. I'm, when I was a boy, we just had the radio. That was the great invention of that time. So these things are different, generational differences, uh, gender differences. And so on the level of sankharas, everything is different because it's changing. You know, can you form equality among conditions that are perpetually changing? So wanting to find equality, which is an ideal of perfection, we're observing the inequality, the changing conditions that we have to experience through these forms through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, through the mind, through the brain. But the awareness isn't personal. When we take refuge in Dhamma, then we're transcending the personal identities. We're letting go of them. So there's no person left anymore. There's just pure awareness that is very peaceful. You might describe it as blissful. It's the end of suffering here and now. In terms of the fetters, restlessness, I always investigating that as an experience because my body is a very restless form. And so, you know, this, according to the tradition, then you, you let go of restlessness and uh, free yourself from all ten fetters and you're uh, an enlightened anarahant. So wanting to attain arahantship, then trying to, to stop being restless, stop my body from being restless, where is that coming from? It's, it's my body is restless, I want to make it content with the way it is, according to an ideal. I want to let go of restlessness, be free from it. <clears throat> And so trying to not be restless, what, I'm, I've become a person, a Buddhist monk who's trying to become an arahant, trying to let go of restlessness and be free from it. Now this is like reflecting on the way it is, wanting to get rid of restlessness as a form of desire desire to get rid of something? Or is restlessness just the very nature of sangsara? If everything is changing, all conditions are impermanent, the body is a restless form. That's the way it is. And when I see it as my form, as mine, then I want to change it so I'm not restless, that's sakyaditi, that's the self-view operating the ego, wanting to attain some ideal 
that I have uh, acquired from, uh, from the scriptures, from the tradition, and it, it can't do it. You can't stop the body from being restless because its very nature is change. Like how long can you sit like that in, in the traditional Thai polite posture with your legs to one side? That's very difficult for, for Western monks, nuns to do. Then the ideal in Thailand, you know, as you're, as you're training in, in a Thai monastery, then sitting with the legs to one side is an absolute necessity. You know, they scold you if you change, if you sit in the samadhi posture, you're not allowed to do that, except when you're meditating. So you continue that the, the, the legs to one side is the polite posture and that's the only right one. Or is sitting in a chair, is that, can you meditate sitting in a chair? You know, is the question, do you have to sit on the floor in a full lotus posture to really get good samadhi uh, and get enlightened through good samadhi through the lotus posture on the floor? These are ideas um, that we, we might assume from this tradition. But they are ideas. Can enlightenment be dependent upon posture of the body when it's not restless? When it's not feeling hot or cold or tired or weak or overly vigorous? Or what is the awareness of restlessness is not restless. So Dhamma never gets restless. So as we take refuge in Dhamma or mindfulness or awareness, we realize the end of restlessness as a problem. The restless conditions of the body the mind and so forth still go on in their habitual ways, but we're no longer upset or disturbed by them because our, we've broken down the illusion that we are these very unsatisfying, unstable forms they were identified with before, which is ignorance, ignorance of the way it is. And then the idea of being content. And so I instruct, you know, I say, you should be content with the four requisites, content with your life here. We've got this well-supported monastery and uh, the food requisites, the medical conditions, uh, the living, the shelter, the robes are all abundantly provided, generously provided by lay people. Uh, the Dhamma is taught, encouraged to practice, and Vinaya is respected. It's perfect monastery, you should be content. So then you form a sense that 
there's something wrong with you because you aren't content. Or you, you think you should be content and try to be content as a person. And then you, you challenge yourself, can, you as a, can your personality ever be really content? Because the personality is very changeable, like a will-o'-the-wisp, like a monkey in a jungle. It just jumps from one banana to another. And so they, you know, to try to stop the mind from thinking and feeling, you can't do it. You know, you can develop samatha practice, go into concentration practices in which you can still everything through concentration. But most of our daily life isn't about concentration in that way. We have to live in, in, in a community with, with the changing conditions that we experience in daily life, with the projects that we are involved in, with the people that we live with. So is enlightenment when you can go off by yourself and live in a state of perpetual samadhi, concentrated on an object, where nothing disturbs you, where the conditions are perfect? That's an ideal, beautiful ideal, nothing wrong with it. But it is an ideal. An ideal is a made-up condition. It's not Dhamma. Dhamma is not an ideal. It's the way it is. All conditions are impermanent. All Dhamma is non-personal. Consciousness is not personal. So when you realize that for yourself, then compassion arises because you're aware of the, the illusions that people live with, the community you're in, the society that you're involved with, with your parents, with the neighbors, with everything around us is, is caught in the illusion of separateness. And that separateness is suffering because as a separate form, you know, in a vast universe, just this physical body, old body in a vast universe, you know, if, I, if this was my identity, then, uh, you know, becoming increasingly more helpless, have to depend on other monks and, uh, you know, you feel, uh, you know, your vision is fading and everything is changing and getting worse rather than better. And the identity with a fading form is, is a form of bondage and suffering. Where when you see the identity with the form is is an illusion, you let go. The whole point is to let go of forms 
and just be the pure conscious awareness itself, being the Dhamma itself, being apparent here and now, timeless. And when you realize the timeless reality of Dhamma, then the samsara becomes even more apparent. You, rather than seeing the, the earth, the planet, earth and the solar system, the sun and moon, the galaxies, the stars in the skies as something distant and far and remote and maybe, maybe threatening, we see that our position is Dhamma, which is where the sun, moon, and stars, all the planets and the galaxy, everything is within consciousness. Consciousness is the true refuge, the place of no suffering, the place of freedom and liberation. So I offer this as a reflection.